Welcome to the 426th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome historian of science and technology, Amy Slayton, back to COVID Calls for a second visit. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and also on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. According to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, as of Tuesday, February 22nd, there are 5,904,853 deaths globally from COVID-19. In the United States, 938,987 people have lost their lives from COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that reading now. The headline is Todd Gitlin, activist and scholar who shaped and chronicled the new left dies at 79. This was written by Harrison Smith and appeared February 7th, 2022 in the Washington Post. Todd Gitlin, who organized rallies against the South African apartheid, racial segregation, and the Vietnam War before turning to writing as a vehicle for social change, emerging as an incisive media scholar, sociologist, and sometime critic of the left, died on February 5th at a hospital in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. He was 79. His stepdaughter, Shoshana Hawley, confirmed his death, but did not know the cause. She said he had suffered cardiac arrest on New Year's Eve and was diagnosed with COVID-19 after being hospitalized near his home in Hillsdale, New York. Dr. Gitlin also had an apartment in Manhattan where he taught at Columbia University. Drawing on his immersion in the tumultuous student protest movement of the 1960s, Dr. Gitlin was a voice of the American left for more than half a century, writing cultural and political commentary, appearing as a talking head in documentaries and championing pro-democracy and anti-war causes at picket lines and teach-ins. He didn't just watch from the sidelines, said his friend Peter Dreyer, a professor of politics and urban and environmental policy at Occidental College in Los Angeles. From his college days onward, he was deeply involved in the major movements of his time, including an effort to organize working class whites in Chicago, which he chronicled in his first book, Uptown, which appeared in 1970, and the Occupy Wall Street movement, which he examined in his book, Occupy Nation, which appeared in 2012. As a scholar, Dr. Gitlin investigated the inner workings of the television industry and examined the role that journalism plays in shaping social movements, an issue he had firsthand experience with as a leader of Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, which extolled participatory democracy and came to define the new left before disintegrating into factions at the end of the 1960s. I never thought about a career, Gitlin once told the Harvard Crimson, because I thought the movement was going to be my life. Dr. Gitlin was elected the president of SDS in 1963 
at age 20, succeeding Tom Hayden, one of the country's most prominent radicals. He was arrested while protesting a whites-only amusement park in Baltimore County, and in 1965 helped organize an anti-apartheid sit-in at the New York headquarters of Chase Manhattan Bank, one of the South African government's lenders. Later that year, he and fellow SDS leader Paul Booth spearheaded one of the first major protests of the Vietnam War, a march on Washington that drew more than 15,000 students. Everything these people did was charged with intensity, Gitlin wrote in his book, The 60s, Years of Hope, Days of Rage, which appeared in 1987, reflecting on his work with SDS. His fellow activists, he wrote, were at once analytically keen and politically committed, but also with a thousand gestures of affection, these unabashed moralists cared about one another, he wrote. Written in the first and third person, the 60s mixed memoir and history, dissecting the decade and the cultural and political currents that shaped it. Reviewing the book for the New York Times, author Jim Miller called it required reading for anyone who wants to grasp the youthful spirit of the time, adding, without false sentimentality, he recreates the political odyssey of the radicals of his generation as well as his own role in that odyssey. Hitler maintained his liberal viewpoint even as he frustrated some activists with his writing. In The Twilight of Common Dreams, which appeared in 1995, he examined the decline of the left, accusing activists of being distracted. While the right has been busy taking the White House, he wrote, the left has been marching on the English department. The book received generally positive reviews, but caused breaches with many of his old comrades, according to his friend and fellow SDS organizer, Robert J.S. Ross, an emeritus professor of sociology at Clark University. In a phone interview, Ross said Gitlin was committed to equality, small d democracy, and a civic culture of tolerance and respect. His anger and frustration did not lead to innovation or despair, but to action. He said when Trump was inaugurated, Bob, I'm going to have a good war. And boy, did he go at it, writing essays and op-eds arguing that the president posed a threat to democracy. The older of two children, Todd Allen Gitlin, was born in Manhattan on January 6, 1943, and grew up in the Bronx. His grandparents were Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe, and his parents were high school teachers. His father taught history, his mother taught typing and stenography, and they were liberal Democrats. Gitlin was class valedictorian at the Bronx High School of Science, graduating at age 16, and enrolled at Harvard University to study mathematics. As he told it, he was not politically engaged until his sophomore year when he fell in love with a daughter of former communists, went to a rally against nuclear weapons and accepted an invitation to join an anti-nuclear group called Toxin. Hitler earned his doctorate in 1977 from the University of California, Berkeley, where he was a professor for 16 years and directed the school's mass communications program. He taught at NYU before joining the faculty of Columbia and serving as a professor of journalism and sociology. Todd's influence is so great that many people who are influenced by his ideas don't know his name, his friend Dreyer said in an email. Every organizer and activist recognizes the dilemma of trying to get media attention by engaging in various forms of protest. Media often focus on the protesters, not the issues they're protesting. Todd's book, The Whole World is Watching, published in 1980, was the first systematic analysis of that dilemma based on both his scholarly research and his experiences as an activist. In his classes at Berkeley and elsewhere, Gitlin said he often tried to demystify the 1960s to his students. The 60s seemed completely other to them, unfathomable, he told the Times in 1989. Until now, they've never even heard of it except in lurid images, Jerry Rubin, hippies. It's very odd to them. Still, he added, it's odd enough even if you lived through it.
obituary of Todd Gitlin. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and it is a pleasure to welcome my friend and colleague Amy Slayton back to COVID Calls. Let me introduce her to you. Amy Slayton is a professor of history at Drexel University in Philadelphia. She holds a PhD in the history and sociology of science from the University of Pennsylvania. Her research focuses on the history of technical expertise and labor, seen through the lens of historical ideas of human difference, asking, that is, how ideas of race gender, disability, and queer identifications have operated in places of scientific and technical work. Her most recent book, Race, Rigor, and Selectivity in U.S. Engineering, The History of an Occupational Color Line, appeared with Harvard Press in 2010. The book follows racial ideologies in engineering higher education since the 1940s. Her current book project is called All Good People, Diversity, Difference, and the Invention of Opportunity. And the book describes the limits of American commitments to equity around race, gender, LGBTQ, and disabilities since the civil rights era. She's also the co-editor with Tiago Sariva of the journal History and Technology. Amy Slayton, welcome back to COVID Calls. Thank you. It's so good to be here. So I'd like to start the way I generally do, find out where you're calling from, an update on the pandemic situation there today, if we could. Sure. I am calling from Narberth, Pennsylvania, which is a close-in suburb of Philadelphia. Um, I am able to do a lot of my own work from home. The university that I work at, Drexel University, has returned almost entirely to on-campus teaching and research, and there is some still some administration uh, tasks being done remotely. It is a moment of strange uncertainty, I'd say, numbers are dropping. Um, the numbers in Philadelphia that I pay attention to are in Pennsylvania. Let me know that my safety is probably greater than it was some weeks ago. Um, if I take the you know, local commuter rail into town, I'm probably half as likely as I was three weeks ago to catch Omicron, but I'm still more likely to get Omicron than I was to get Delta. Um, you know, Four months ago, so so my life is uh, is not drastically changed, but I'm very lucky. I have a very very um, uh, I have a I have a very privileged position being able to control my work own working conditions and work from home. My many of my colleagues and the students we teach and our staff members at the university are not quite so lucky. I do know that um, hospitalizations in Philadelphia, deaths in Philadelphia from COVID are um, uh, lower, are, are dropping more quickly than other parts of the state. Um, that's not a wholly new pattern. Um, and I know hospitals are not at their worst, but nor are they at their best, if that if that gives a sense of it. Yeah, thanks for that. And um, you're in that sort of interesting, close in suburban area of Philadelphia, mm -hmm. um, where the governance, I think, has tended to be probably among the most conservative around COVID protections in the United States. Yeah. But Pennsylvania is a big, stretchy state, and it's a weird place to govern. I mean, what do you think it's going to, where's it going to go in the, in the next year? Is it moving to sort of a all open, the pandemic is over kind of mentality? Yeah, I think that all up and down the Northeast, as far as I can tell, at least Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, these sort of bluish states with very bluish urban areas um, are coming to a more a more 
I don't know, one word for it might be balanced perspective where there's less uh, conflict because there's less control. And there's a very strong movement to um, just just remove the mask mandate in schools. And I think all of these states um, are going to go that way fairly quickly. And I would say people's conducts, by and large, are... are um, kind of rapidly unifying around just they're done. They're done worrying. They're done protecting. They're done wearing masks. They're done being concerned. So people are not using the past tense yet as far and as far as I can tell, but I do feel that transition is underway. And I think then if they use the past tense, it's going to be around conducts, not around risks. I think people mm. have thought about the same level of risk, frankly. It's so, just, yeah, yeah. Um, I've been asking the impossible question, which is for people to offer a memory of this mm. time. It's a particularly hard challenge for historians, I think. <laughs> um, but is there something that's uh, a memory, a, um, an association, something that happened, or something, an impression that stands in for you in this, for this time? Wow. I mean, I think there's, I mean, my first thing to say, wait, memory? You mean, you mean, I mean, truly, I feel like there was it's no so dense. Right. Yeah. There's, there was no before. I know there was a before intellectually, but I, I can't, I can't get, I find it difficult to step away with my imagination enough to notice something as even being a memory. But, but I think that, I think that the, that sense of just being in public and being anxious, being nervous, being threat, feeling threatened, <coughs> excuse me, is, is one that, you know, when I realized that that what I lived many decades without that experience, I mean, I live a very sheltered life and I have a very secure social identity and, you know, good employment, but the idea that going into public, going into stores, going onto trains, crossing the street, you know, you have to be wary of people is just, you know, we've, I was raised in the United States. I've never lived through a war on my own, on my own territory, let alone my own property. This was new. And I realized when I realized that that is something I had never experienced until March of 2020, it's a kind of a stark it's a stark realization. You were the 10th guest on COVID calls. We did an episode with you and disability scholar, Amy Hamry, and it was a great call. And, um, and at that time we were, we were talking about the present, but we were also sort of projecting what was going, you know, trying to grasp a hold of something that was pretty murky at that point, I went back and looked. I actually couldn't believe this when I saw this. On that day, March 27, 2020, there were 1,478 deaths reported in the United States, which was up from 1,124 the day before, which, um, you know, so 300 and um, 360 something deaths changed. And, and that change was, was scary. Mm-hmm. So we were starting to see, um, you know, the rapid increase day by day. And then, you know, today we're approaching a million. I, so I wanted to sort of 
just bring that to you and reflect with that with you a little bit on that in a couple of ways. One is just what you think of it, but then also what you what you think about using the numbers mm-hmm. now, because the numbers at that time to me they were something I felt like I could get my hands and my head around. Yeah, they were still at a scale that offered some analytical purchase, and I. Yes. And I don't know when we cross the line beyond that, but I feel like I have. Yeah, and I think I think in those early days, there was a way that the scale helped us get a sense of pace. It helped us understand how quickly things were changing, or at least to it felt like a metric of what was happening, right? And, and you know, we weren't working in emergency rooms. It didn't have a, I mean, you were talking to people who were working in emergency rooms, right? Um um, and, you know, trying to find ventilators. Um, but for those of us who weren't even that close to it, we would read the paper and we'd get some sense, if not of the, the any kind of accurate empirical measure of the disaster, at least we we kept reflecting on how fearful we should be and how worried we should be about other people, um, how worried we should be about the people who worked in emergency rooms. And I think that that function for numbers changed even before the 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 portable morgues were packed up even before the the emergency rooms were you know and the ICUs were back to some manageable case because what i noticed in the recent the recent weeks? Is it months now? When we were hearing about increases in Omicron infections um, and fewer deaths, yet still packed hospitals in certain areas, um, lower vaccine rates and stressed medical systems in certain areas, the numbers weren't, the numbers didn't become increasingly shocking. The numbers were no longer, the numbers no longer eclipsed our broad cultural or my broad cultural understanding, like, oh, look, what a divided nation we have. Some people just don't care. Some people care. Oh, look, some people, you know, just don't worry. Some worry. The numbers weren't doing any kind of real work for me of measuring anything anymore. And that that stopped early. Now, that's me. Um, I think a lot about how numbers work historically, mm-hmm. what get measured. This is part of what I study historically. How is how is how do we calibrate? And whether that's calibrating, you know, um, the protein value in a you know a hot dog uh, or a um, a you know the danger, the risk of a new pharmaceutical compared to the benefits. I mean, I think a lot about how numeracy and numbers work. Mm-hmm. But I'm I've learned in the last year also realized when numbers stop working, when numbers stop stop measuring in a way they once measured. And it's not disaster fatigue. It's not fatigue at all. It's just the opposite. It's just feeling so swamped and feeling that the thing is on a scale where it's pervasive. There's no there's no edges to it. There may be no end, but there's certainly no edges to its social impacts. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, I want to follow up on this idea that it's not that it's not fatigue because that's mm-hmm. often been sort of thrown out there as kind of a shorthand um, as why the urgency of action may right. seem less have to have to decreased while the 
death numbers in the United States and around the world continue to increase. You don't own that up to people just getting tired of hearing about death. There's something else at work there. Well, first of all, I'm always cautious. I'm always cautious of that notion of uh, compassion fatigue or disaster fatigue, because I think that what that does is, first of all, it places the phenomenon back onto the values, the morals, the ethics, the sensitivity of the individuals who are observing it happen. And I actually think that often, you know, we, in this case, we had for some time a national leadership that was very, very willing to see death increase, to see just brutal treatment of medical personnel and first responders for the sake of its own, you know, popularity and its own base. And I feel like just to formulate the notion of compassion fatigue is to imagine a failing on the part of the people who are in some sense often victims or often, you know, I mean, we, it's like saying, you know, you know, we've given up. Well, no, actually the circumstances have become so hopeless and so pervasive that we function within them. So that's why I think you can't say that people don't care. I think it's not tenable. It's it's not tenable to keep up your worry at that same level and homeschool your kids and get your job done and take care of your elders. And Right. So I, I'm cautious about the term and I don't think it does much for us. Let me take one more angle on this, which actually has to do with the the problem of accuracy, Mm -hmm. because that's also been, um, I had a conversation with Phil Zellico. It was an interesting conversation. I mean, the former, you know, executive director of the 9-11 commission. Um, And he was the first guest I had who actually sort of chastised me in a, in a constructive way and said, you know, I don't put any, I don't put any confidence in those numbers. Mm-hmm. And and he suggested that that people should be looking at the excess mortality figures mm-hmm. to achieve accuracy. Mm-hmm. And and I was brought up a little. Sh- I liked it, but I was brought up a little short by that because it made me realize that I probably had stopped having discourse around the COVID numbers in the search for accuracy, mm-hmm. and had continued to read them as um, as a high water mark. That, that there was subjectivity to it, but as long as you're still working within the sort of same subjective measures, which right. is in this case, the Johns Hopkins right. University, you still achieved a, a notion of the passage of time, which, which maybe is not the right way to approach it. That's the way I have been looking at it, in part because I think as a historian, I just, you know, I don't know when I gave up on the possibility of accuracy, but it was probably a long time ago. But I, I guess I wanted to draw you out on that because that can also be a dangerous a dangerous path. Mm-hmm. I mean, that accuracy um, or the lack of it means the provision or lack of provision of real healthcare supplies, mm-hmm. real mm-hmm. supports for people mm-hmm. who've lost jobs and many other things. Yeah. And we are cautioned by, I think, the most incisive and most critical um, uh, uh, scholars of um, inequity, scholars of uh coloniality scholars of racism say, look, the material matter, the materiality matters, right? And you can have all the ideological history and discussion you want, but you've got to follow the resources and see where they end. You've got to follow the material commitments and the material deprivations to understand things. So I think that's really, really strong. But I have a I have a kind of provocative um, uh, addendum to that, which is I have a really, a rather brilliant uh, friend who is a historian of early modern science. This is uh, my friend, Darren Hayton, mm-hmm. teaches at Harvard College. And he, we 
taught a course a few years ago on the history of um, epidemics. I believe you were involved in that in that mm -hmm. class. And Darren has done a great deal of work on um, uh, history and historiography of the great plagues, right? The great the great decimating plagues of of uh, the uh, of Europe, um, and he had he gave his lecture and one of the students challenged the numbers because um the student said well i've heard that x many millions of people died whatever percentage of the population of england died but you know there's also right and darren said really really shockingly at first he said i actually don't care how many people died in the plague and everyone in the room their jaw dropped because they're like oh my god that's just cruel how could you not care he's like he's like no I don't care how many people died because what we need to understand is how anybody died, how one person died, how many people died. And there are different reasons why, you know, different people of different economic status died and others didn't. There are reasons that, you know, children didn't die and adults did die or people in cities died and people in rural, right? So there are explanations required, right? And if all we think we need to grasp is the scale. We have missed the mechanisms. We have missed the thing. And of course, he didn't mean at all that we should care less. He meant we should care more and not be caught up in perhaps what felt like a drama of that mm. scale of death, which of course is lets us distance ourselves from it, yeah. right? Or dramatize it. And it was just a really provocative historical intervention. I think I think um, about that often. Which really, but yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and so I think, in no way, if you if you were lazy and you heard that, you'd be like, either think this person doesn't care about human suffering, or this person doesn't care about accuracy. And actually, his message is just the opposite. His message is that we have to reflect on how we care and what we look for and what, how far we go in understanding human tragedy. No, I mean that. Yeah, that's really something. And I was talking to Chuck Strozier just two mm -hmm. days ago, and you know, whenever I talk about Chuck, we talk about like topics like the apocalypse. <laughs> and but there's something important to this, which is that I, when you're in the scale of the apocalyptic, it is a different kind of discourse. It is a different kind of fear. I mean, it's like the nuclear fear. Like we could end all human life on Earth. Right. And so that's one package of fears. And there's inequalities within that sort of mode of thinking, but you don't tend to think about inequality when you're talking about species level extinction. I mean, you should, because you should be thinking about who caused it and who didn't cause it. But once you get out of that mode, which pretty early on we did with COVID-19, mm -hmm. then that is the moment where Darren's analysis and your analysis, I think, absolutely becomes absolutely crucial. I mean, if we went back and talked about those numbers uh, that I quoted earlier, 1,478 deaths. I imagine if we went back and parsed who had died in America by that point, you would find some intense inequalities mm -hmm. around race and age mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at that point. Even more stark probably at that point than later in the pandemic. Yeah, or or distinct. Maybe not more stark, but but distinct. I think that's absolutely right. And I also think that, you know, you're you're reminding me of a lot of the ways that um, uh, activists and um, other observers talk about climate change, right? Which is how do you tell a story? How do you tell a story that has enough 
it's compelling enough to compel action, but it is not so um, uh, totalizing that action seems pointless, right? And again, I know I realize the way I'm describing this as if the um, that there's a sort of instrumental function to counting or to describing or narrating or you know you know, and of course there is, there there absolutely is, right? That that there's not some absolute objectively uh, graspable phenomena out there. There's only phenomena that we hope to present and understand and share in ways that make life better, I hope, for, you know, our children and for others and for subsequent generations. Let me just remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking with Amy Slayton today. And let's talk a little bit about 2020. The periodization within the pandemic actually started pretty early. And um, you and I had conversations, um, always to my benefit, uh, around what 2020 was going to mean. And I remember distinctly where I was when we sort of we're talking about whether 2020 was one of these these years for good or for ill, which becomes a sort of marker of discontinuity in the historical fabric. And, and we can talk about whether that's useful or not. But so 2020 studies as a as a concept. Yeah. And you've been working on that since with Tiago Sariva mm -hmm. and Jesse Smith and others, including myself and Jackie Wernermont and Shannon Mattern and, and many others. So mm -hmm. um could you sort of set out the landscape a little bit there for make the case for 2020 studies and how you feel about it and where this work is going? Yeah. Well, like so many other things that we undertake uh, in this century, there is there is as much irony to that rubric as there is, you know, as there is card catalog utility. Right. It's it's a it's the very idea, you know, that you can have. X studies or hashtag X, you know, these are, these are, you know, we laugh at ourselves a bit when we do this, but I think when we first talked about this project, you framed the idea of coalescing disasters, disasters coming together. And um, that of course was in this case was COVID, it was climate change and it was um, the great, the great, you know, uh, speaking of, ironic terms, but the racial reckoning that followed the um, uh, murder of George Floyd and the and the um, social activism that that surrounded that. And and I think the the latter of those, the idea that the murder of George Floyd um, was part of this this moment, this 2020 moment was, of course, not that one man had been murdered, but that suddenly, you know, there was an accounting for the for for the deep, deep continuities in American um, uh, anti-Black um, conducts and institutions and ideologies well through and beyond the civil rights era. So anyway, those were our sort of, we were looking at those things and I think we were just shaken. We were moved by the sheer scale and the coincidence of these really um, 
dire circumstances all coming together. And of course, we understood enough to know they were related that, again, the same political landscape that uh, had made it possible for Americans, many Americans to to ignore climate change, to um, for many uh, majority Americans to ignore black incarceration and um, and other forms of of real real identity based violence, anti trans violence, and ableism, and anti immigration, anti immigrant sensibilities. That these arose from similar political choices and structures, and and literally the same congressional leaders who had, you know, decided that COVID didn't require action and that messages that challenged the validity of science, all these things were okay. All these disasters were actually causally connected. So we had, we felt, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember we, we thought we had a pretty solid historical question to ask about how these could be seen together. But we were also curious about how a culture um, how a culture experiences a given moment and what does move people to action? What does move people to, to protest or to stage revolutions or to give up um, and to, you know, and to turn inward from even from their communities and just be part of their own little pod as we, as we were saying, right? So we took those, those, what appeared to us to be identifiable historical phenomena and, we tried to understand what happens when you look at them together. Um, and we also, I think, were sort of celebrating the idea that, um, or not celebrating, but we were sort of maybe leaning with hope into the idea that we might get some perspective and maybe ourselves feel a little bit less overwhelmed if we could just mm -hmm. see the pattern. And that's what historians do. And I think that's what artists do. And I think that's what you know, a lot of other uh, people in the arts and letters do is they try to sustain themselves and others through perspective. So 2020 Emerge is a project where historians, um, uh, artists, some activists, some political scientists would come together and talk about how should we see the moment? How should we see 2020? And is 2020, as you said, a determinative um, spin around the sun? Is it a determinative year? Um, so I think that's that's how we saw the project. Um, should I say a bit about what's emerged since then? In the yeah, let me. I just want to. You've summarized it very, very beautifully, and I just want to um, just reflect on one part of that too, which is mm -hmm. that um, I like the way. I mean, it really was a moment where one of the things we've been talking about in disaster studies is that disasters don't just reveal. Often it's the sort of, you know, pull back the curtain and, and see what's, you know, really yeah. happening in society. And there is an aspect of that, but that societies are also, the disasters are also generative. Mm -hmm. And that when you get cascading disasters and they start to interlace and the causality, the arrows are moving in many different directions, then that is a, that is a moment in, in which you will see um, real mm -hmm. discontinuity. If you're studying disaster policy or if you're studying mm -hmm. the way that um, nonprofits work in disaster or sociology mm -hmm. of disaster and human behavior, we mean different things. And I stand by that. I still think that that those first few months of the pandemic were one and particularly bringing in the Black Lives Matter movement um, is 
I, I think it stands up, mm-hmm. but we're still in the middle of this disaster. Mm-hmm. And so the problem of chronological work, which I'm always at odds w- with myself about, just the same as we were talking about the numbers. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do it, but I, I do it. Yeah. And I need, because yeah. I need to. Yeah. And I want to build the, the, the high, I want to build the flood gauge. And then I want to be the guy standing next to the flood gauge. Like, I really don't like this flood gauge at all, right. but I need you to talk with me about it for a while. Yeah. So, so I'll just say a couple, I'll say a couple things. One of which is that um, I think that COVID calls itself has been in some ways has been one of the best outcomes of, of seeing 2020 in that way, because you have not at any point said, oh, that kind of thinker, that kind of observer doesn't belong in the mix. No, we're all living through it. And if it was a political science or an epidemiologist or an artist or a nurse or the daughter of someone who had died or, right. I mean, I mean, this, this was, this was sort of, I I think has been sort of the function of COVID calls, but I think this was one of the driving impulses behind the 2020 studies project was to maybe step back and say, well, well, all of our habits of saying, this is how culture works. It has science, it has art, it has priorities, you know, and they're all separate. Well, Well, our categories, our taxonomies, right, are are themselves really specific. And maybe they're no longer particularly informative. And maybe they're hiding things we might want to reveal and change. And, and so I think the disciplinary, the confrontation with disciplines was important, but also the confrontation with systems. That we, if we are trying and we do this, in, I mean, if you look at any any bit of higher education, any bit of federal funding, any bit of, of you know, any bit of the world of private consulting or lobbyists, we treat health as a distinct human issue than education. And those two are distinct from um, uh, uh, environment. Oh, wait, those three are distinct from, um, you know, um, I don't know, uh, you know, these these are sectors that we, that function separately, we see them separately. And yet, as we've been saying, they are they are not separable. They are not separable in their origins, in their impacts, in their values. So I think that's something that holds up and that's what we've seen. But if I can go on for a second, I think the other the other deployment that that 2020 studies project tried to take up was the notion of, look, we understand that historians, and anthropologists and sociologists and economists make the world that they describe. They delimit what is seen as a phenomenon. They de- they um, they determine what is seen as a meaningful aspect of that phenomenon. And I think that historians have come to understand. And I'm I'm like you in the rain gauge, I'm like looking at history and saying, I'm, I, I think history is the greatest tool for human understanding ever developed. And there's what the heck is going on with history. Right. And I think that reflects reflexiveness is, is absolutely necessary and only going to come about with projects that are not familiar to us in their form and their formats in their audiences. Yeah. Thank you for that. And it's, um, 
you know, Frederick Jackson Turner spinning in his grave is fine, that, that we're not trying to make a science. Um, at least I'm not, and I don't think you are. But, but we do, and so that ref, reflexivity is important. And I have wondered about that, and thank you for sort of putting COVID calls in that, because it has been an attempt to try to talk in real time, day by day, about how an archive gets made by a person who has no experience or no real business making an archive. I mean, I study what's in archives, but um, but living through a disaster and making an archive, and that's what um, what you know. Even using the term twenty twenty studies, which, as you point out, is is done in earnest, but also an invitation to the discovery of what the irony. Mm-hmm. inherent in making a study. Mm-hmm. I just, I'll share with you that we're launching a new journal, you know about this, but there's a new disaster studies journal, which is coming that I've been working on with colleagues. And um, we went round and round about the name of this thing for so long. And I'm not going to say a lot more about it at this point, but just that, just what you call an intellectual intervention, even about something you spend mm-hmm. your whole life studying. Yeah. Because there is a sort of moment in which you say, okay, we're actually, I guess we're going to do this. This thing which we spend all of our time pushing back against, the creation of a structure that we know limits what we can see. And mm-hmm. yet we have to build it to see anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think if I can, if I can um, um, get on my especially soapy soapbox for a second, um, I think that one of the things that's been really frightening for me is to watch the kind of fiscal crises in um, higher ed in the United States over the last two years, um, which of course started long before then and, and only became sort of more, you know, amplified during COVID, but to see that the response to the kind of fiscal and sustainability crises of higher ed, public and private in the United States, has been to double down on this notion that, oh, the economy is in trouble. Uh, we The nation is in trouble. What we need is more of the stuff that uh, um, built us in the first place. You know what that is? That's industry. That's science. That's technology. That's innovation. That's... and. Sure, things are different, and we now have to work on a global uh, platform. Sure, we now have a commitment to diversity, and we need more diverse innovators. But higher ed in the United States has taken both the collective sort of national security and the well-being of individual citizens and said, what we have to get at now is the is the real stuff, and that's mm. science, that's technology, that's him. Humanities? Nice, but you know, it's a nicety. Humanities moving, but you know, um, again, it's a luxury. And by taking that message and sort of telling families and young people and folks who are returning to education that your security depends on working working with um, industry and working with capitalistic, you know, um, uh, standards of productivity, um, your nation's security, everything depends on you becoming part of the system that has always been there. And the reflexivity, the critique, the doubt 
that humanities and social sciences and arts can supply, right, are not seen as the wellspring of care and love and and social growth. They're seen as at best a nicety and at worst an impediment. They're seen as a muddling, a messiness, um, uh, um, a privilege. They're seen as a liberal bastion of privileged navel-gazing, right? And it's terrifying to me because without questions about sec sectoral, you know, uh, power and influence, like industry and I read, without questions about right. this is, we, we will just, it'll be 2020 every year from here on out. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because it's a, you know, um, early in the pandemic, and I'm sure you had these conversations too, um, people were seeking out historians. And there was even this sort of moment of discourse where there was like, oh, the, this is the humanities and social science moment to shine. We're going to really, this this is a world altering event that's happening and, and we need some perspective on it. And mm -hmm. we get these questions. So what did 1918 mean? Right. Exactly, exactly. And, and so there was that. And I, I like that question. I have no problem with that question. Mm -hmm. It's a hard question to answer. Um, but then the follow-up question was generally, okay, so what lessons do we learn from the great influenza that we can apply now? Mm -hmm. And I, oh, I, I always take a beat before I try to answer that question because I cannot give you... A, a lessons learned checklist, which, I mean, there's, yeah, there's some applicable findings, but that's not how the knowledge that we have accrued about social structures and power works in the world. Exactly. Exactly. It's not, it's not deployed as a five point action list. And right. what you, what, what I always kind of wanted to say, but I don't ever say in that moment is, if I gave it to you, you wouldn't use it because the structure of power is built in such a way that you just want to have talked to me, but not actually act on anything that, I say. That's right. Right. That sounded a little shrill, didn't it? But, but I think just shrill enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, what is happening inside universities then? I mean, I think it is a good place to look for, you know, if universities aren't going to defend the humanities and the social sciences, I mean, the Defense Department isn't. Okay, so I just have to say one thing. I'm torn because, like so many of the things we've talked about, I both, I think we said this about numbers. I mean, I think, I mean, I think that what we have always called humanities, or what we in our lifetimes have called humanities, and what we were trained and understand to be history, right, um, are are absolutely unequaled in their in their potential to make a more caring polity, a more caring society, right? Um, so I think that, but I also in some ways want to say, okay, we just have to, we have to stop giving them their own, like we have to stop saying that they're separate from, you know, it's like, Oh, that thing where you consider the um, the racial patterns that led to disparate um, deaths in um, different communities in 1918, that was part of the science. Let's just call that the science when really we know it's a historical lens, right? Or the the raking light that, um, that uh, 
let's say that, you know, critical gender studies or feminist studies might cast on, um, um, I don't know, caregiving in a pandemic, right? Okay, don't call that, don't call that um, cultural, don't call that feminist studies. Just call that, just call that, you know, you know, the thing they don't mind, which would be like, I don't know, economy, work, labor, you know. Labor force analysis. Labor force analysis, right? Just, yeah. So there's, I mean, that's, I'm starting to think in real Trojan horse sorts of of, of modes, but, um, um, you know, and I think you could have someone who, you know, analyzes, you know, I don't know, Shakespeare's sonnets, and I, and I could package that in a way that would be really good for public health. Trust me, I could do this. But, um, but I think that what's happening in universities, and I've sort of tried, because I'm a historian um, of higher education in, in, many, in, in many ways, that's kind of how I watch the history of race and gender and queer and crip identities in STEM is through what, what happens in STEM education. But what I've seen in both public and private universities and community colleges um, uh, in the United States in the last two years is this desperation for um, for uh, some kind of secure financial basis, right? As students stepped away from, you know, in-person learning, they may have stepped away from education altogether. Many people lost jobs. Many people Families were no longer able to pay tuition, but there was certainly no no impulse on the government's um, side to to replenish, you know, the the resources the universities needed. Um, and I think there was already a strong strong move away from the tenure system, which of course supports not simply the security and the um, academic freedom of of researchers, but but it gives them the time. It gives them the time to do research, which means that when they're teaching students, they're coming into the classroom with fresh, new, and um, kind of revitalized understandings. Because that has that is really, really lost its purchase on our culture. And I think I've in the last week I have followed an Ivy League university and a um, small polytechnic, as both of them have developed really resonant, if not, you know, identical um, statements about how they will approach tenure, right? There is a, there is a sense that this is no longer a needed structure. It's, again, it's a privileged structure that to the right, you know, protects, you know, dangerous leftist thought, but to the, wait, to the right, it's a danger, tenure's a dangerous leftist thing, but to the left or to the liberal, the more liberal sensibilities in, in higher ed, it's often like, well, all right, something's got to go. Let it be tenure. Right. Mm-hmm. Like as long as, as long as we still have, you know, an engineering lab and a, and a marketing, you know, degree and a, a, a law school, so I don't know. It's not. I don't know. I could get really ranty, but I probably already really ranty. But I think it's it's a combination of a very, very, um, you know, a really huge devaluation that's gone back at least since Reagan was elected, 
Um, it's a huge national devaluation of um, of uh, arts and letters as a as an important you know source of social well-being. Well, um, let's let's go a little further with this because I, I'm glad you brought up the the tenure discussion and and yeah. right it is being you know state legislatures around the United States are dismantling um, tenure for for state. Um, institutions. Mm -hmm. It will certainly have a creep over into um, mm -hmm. into private universities. Yeah. And one of the important critiques of that, which I have noted, is is to draw people's attention to the fact that, yes, there's a context in which you can understand tenure as supposed to be a system um, that provides for protection for uncomfortable speech or for risky research. Mm -hmm. um, and, and okay, but we can't have that discussion to the to the exclusion of the fact that it's actually, uh, it really has more to do with labor. Yeah, exactly. Ex and, and, and as you get rid of tenure, you continue to devalue the possibility or to degrade the opportunity for academic workers yeah. to control yeah. the terms under which they work. And, you know, tenured professors make up such a small proportion of the overall academic labor force. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the diminution of power for that group, therefore means this enormous ripple effect, which has been underway already for two generations. Yeah, yeah. But it's always talked, why is it always discussed in the pages of the New York Times as this is the end of academic freedom, instead of actually talking about what does this really mean in terms of the labor market for I people will, who work with ideas and teach? I will tell you. <laughs> I, I thought a, you might have an answer to that. I have a strong, strong... Um, sort of feeling about that, which is I think that some of what we get, <clears throat> some of what we get from our uh, paper of record, um, the ostensibly very liberal New York Times, is a a sort of, I guess I don't know in other words, I think it's a falsely provocative um, um, kind of. Uh, approach that that paper offers. And I have many examples of it, but I think the idea is that it chafes, it's going to chafe the concerned uh, reader um, and kind of make them nod with, nod with, um, you know, concerned and even maybe dismayed um, curiosity. Yes, what what would happen without tenure? I I really enjoyed my philosophy class in, in college. What, what will happen? And yet it will not ever frame larger social structures as authentically in need of, of examination, let alone change. So if you raised the issue of the death of tenure as a labor situation and saw higher ed is now a place that is really, you know, pressing labor, squeezing labor, bringing people in to teach as many people, as many students as they can in as short a time as possible, not do research, then you you're really asking people to scratch their heads and wonder if capitalism is in the best interest of society. That's not right. something the New York Times is going to do. And I, I don't mean to demonize that paper. I, I, there are far, far worse outlets and there are, you know, far better ones. It's just as a historian, I see it as it, it just has arisen from and supports a very particular version of liberalism in the United States, which is one that really cannot ask very radical questions and still go about its business. And there was a, last week's magazine had a 
it was focused on the why nobody wants to work, right? That was right. And the first thing that struck me was, well, okay, again, we have a situation where individuals are sort of being characterized as part of a trend of not wanting to work. And I'm like, and yet the system has, you know, has fought tooth and nail against raising wages during the pandemic, right? It's still, it's like squeezing, squeezing those pennies out for minimum wage and yet complaining that the employers can't hire anyone. And it's, it's a framing of a problem that again, gives a kind of, a kind of thoughtful head scratching opportunity to the comfortable, you know, reader, the comfortable employed, you know, person who can afford a subscription, right? But it's not a set of questions that says maybe stratified wage capitalism just can't work. And that issue was really interesting because it had very, very compelling and and heartfelt reportage on experiences of nurses who have had a very rough go. But it three pages later was an absolutely visually stunning set of photo photographic portraits of the of featuring young parents having to work at home while caring for infants and just beautiful like charoscuro portraiture and the very Madonna like portraits of mm-hmm. mother babies. And each one was, you know, trying to work from a Manhattan apartment. Some had nannies, some didn't, some yeah. had, you know, they were very, very securely employed pe- people with a great deal of money and their presentation as having difficulty, their presentation of these folks in these just moving, stunningly beautiful hmm. photos. It just the mainstream media in the United States, by which I mean, you know, the liberal media, will offer this much provocation, this much um, support for reflection, and no more. And that's a historical. That's a historical pattern we know. Is that what I mean? In our in our correspondence before this call, you used the term COVID capitalism, and I've been thinking about that yeah. that term. I mean that um, is that what you mean by that? And 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 I mean just I was thinking about it in terms of of nurses, um, you know, and this this phrase that's been in use out there, the Great Resignation. I think it applies to teachers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, people are leaving mm-hmm. these professions mm-hmm. um and the f- sort of focus on that and the the bind you get into is um you know i've had cassie alexander on COVID calls and to, when you hear her talk and you hear and you think my god people are asked to do that to to provide that kind of care in the middle of this terrible disaster mm-hmm. of course someone would leave that job just to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. You want to hear those individual stories, but you know, when she's really doing her best work is when she steps back and talks about mm-hmm. nursing as a profession and how the institution mm-hmm. of nursing and the, and the professional organization has failed. But what gets most of the attention, and you're talking about these portraits of portraiture and these kind of photos of healthcare workers and teachers, they're about, the, about individuals and they don't talk about mm-hmm. structures. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And I think that the absence of structural analysis is why we need historians and it's why we need anthropologists. It's why we need, you know, 
we need folks who are who are able to be agile at, about the register at which they look at the you know at which they analyze the phenomenon that before us right that they it's you know we may need individual stories but we may need to understand an individual as a member of a class as a person with an ascribed race or gender as a you know as a person living in a certain country and it is that it is human humanist you know disciplines that give us that agility and just to return to that question about covid capitalism i use that term in sort of the way we might use racial capitalism which is not to imply that there's capitalism ongoing in the United States that is not racial capitalism, right? I I cannot imagine how we can see the history of capital and the history of economic thought in the United States as anything other than racial. But when we modify the word capitalism with a word like racial or a word like COVID, I think what we're trying to capture is an intentionality, Right. We're trying to say that, yeah, it's it's a capitalist premise and it is it is put towards racialist ends. Right. It is a racialist um, society that deploys capitalism. And I think with COVID capitalism, what I'm trying to capture is the idea that when you see an article about the great resignation. Right. That's that's um, and that's a product of. COVID capitalism, which instead of seeing that some people are leaving their jobs because they have to stay home with their children, some people are leaving their jobs because they're exhausted, some people are retiring early because their stocks have done really well in the last two years and they don't need to keep working, yeah. right? Right. And some people are, some people are, um, uh, uh, you know, weren't working before and are choosing not to work now because they're rich or because they're disabled or because they don't have a visa or because, you know, I mean, I think that it's not that it's not the aggregation alone. I mean, we all have to aggregate to make sense of the worry, but the notion of a great resignation is, is a, is a trope produced by COVID capitalism. COVID, thinking about COVID, mm. the service of capitalism, thinking about capitalism amid COVID. I hope that kind of. No, it does. And it, and, but, and it also holds out the, um, when it's used in a critical way, it has a lot of power. When it's used mm -hmm. in, a, in a sort of cynical way, you know, the great resignation, it implies that this is a rough patch and we're going to get past this right. using the same structures that we've, that we've always used. And coming back to, you know, the way you were talking about the university, those structures that have gotten the greatest amount of attention in this time have been structures of science and technological production and scientific research. And I'm as enthusiastic as the, about the mRNA vaccine as, as mm -hmm. anybody, but mm -hmm. we, what did we hear after the vaccine was developed? How are we going to get people to take this thing in a culture where there's so much distrust of the government? Mm -hmm. And, and Francis Collins even said, well, we really it would have been good if we'd known more about the, you know, social history of, you know, vaccine mm -hmm. uptake and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, and so there's that that feature to COVID capitalism as well, which sort of looks past those things and says, yeah, we're just going to get past this hard moment That's as long as we double down on the important things in society, which right. are the productive capacity that comes out of the pharma, pharma right. lab or whatever it is. Yes. and and. I people think, should know. I just want to point out. People should know that you and I 
but you, I take my leadership from, take my example from you on this. You work more closely with engineers and scientists than any scholar I've ever known. This is not like we sit in one room constantly throwing eggs at engineers. We work with them all the time. Right, right, right. And I, and not only have I spent my entire academic career teaching engineering students primarily, get, bringing them the history of engineering, the history of technology, the history of science, helping them, helping them, um, you know, imagine that their curiosities and their, and their, you know, passions are well served with historical questions, right? But also, I have to say at this point, as I study STEM diversity, and I study ideas about inclusion and equity and diversity, um, that the engineers who, and, and scientists who are engaging with this in their classrooms, in their research, are without question, the most incisive and most creative, you know, um, among the most incisive and creative voices I have to help me think about the history of racial ideas in America, the history of ableism, the history of, of you know, what counts as talent, who counts as talented in the United States, who can be talented, who deserves the opportunity and the chance and the scholarship, right? So absolutely, these are Again, and that's what I would say. I know I need to get anything done. I really do need to keep disciplinary categories visible, humanities and engineering, history mm -hmm. and STEM. But boy, do I have a lot of questions about those divisions and how, how well or poorly they serve us. So we're, um, we're pretty much up on time. Um, is there any anything left on the table that you wanted to that you wanted to come back to. I wanted to make sure I noted when we talked about 2020 studies that I've been also, um, one of the things I realized when we started doing that project as I sat down to start writing was um, that I just needed some help in thinking about time. Mm -hmm. And so I've been co-authoring with, um, with STS scholar and disaster researcher, Malka Older, who's also a novelist and who coined this term Corona lag. And she's just an intensely creative person um, and I think, and I, I, I make that point because I've also found working on this project with you and the others really, really exciting because we have kind of lowered our guard a little bit to say we're making, we're going out on a limb here mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a little bit. And we do realize we're making a historical document in the middle of the historical event. Yeah. And so I, I just wanted to bring that back to you for a second because I think it's a good, I think it's a good practice. I think, I think mm -hmm. we should be doing this kind of work at this time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I think some of the questions that have come up for me about, you know, if I purport to care about the well-being of my students, my neighbors, the community, if I purport to care about inequity and, and white supremacism and ableism and, you know, homophobia, is history the toolkit that best serves those concerns. It's a it's an open question, right? Uh, and I'm pretty sure it needs to remain open, right? I I don't think history. I I truly believe there are things that historical accounts, historical accountability, can do that no other modern you know intellectual framing can do, right? But um, there are also many things that history cannot do on its own. And um, even, even accounting for change over time, even accounting for continuity over time, histories, you need more than just history 
right? And and I think what you've described perfectly is the sense that, you know, the the notion of directionality and linearity in our lives for a lot of us has been really challenged these last two years. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, time is, I think, I kind of want to say time has the upper, in a weird way, time has the upper hand right now. I've been saying time has no meaning lately, but I think time might be in charge. So, Do you know the singer Lucy Dacus? She's a singer-songwriter. Yeah, and she has a lyric that's in a song called Time Fighter, and the lyric goes, I fought time, I lost in a landslide. And I, I, I love that. I keep going back to that line because it's such a great, that's such how a I great. Feel. Yeah, I feel that way too. Well, um, let me just remind folks that you've been listening to COVID calls and um, you can usually catch COVID calls at 7 p.m. Eastern time weekdays. Although these days we have COVID calls almost around the clock as we're leading up to the March 16th two-year anniversary and the launch of the Digital Archive. Um, Amy Slayton, thank you for making time to talk today, almost two years after our uh, previous chat on COVID calls. And um, thanks for being a genius and um, keep up your amazing work. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID calls.